we're defaulting so many people or getting them precluded from testifying that like they're not even getting to that because we're just knocking people out early in the case. You know, I don't see that a lot. So that's like a that's a pretty aggressive approach that that you're taking that. I mean, I haven't I, I really haven't seen much of it as of recent. So it's working for you. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan Henry, and today I'm joined by an old law school classmate and friend of mine, Dave Cortler. And Dave is a plaintiff's attorney, and I love having plaintiff's attorneys on because I, I, I like the perspective they can give to, to us on what things that they look for and the, you know, what they're looking for with their interactions with claims adjusters or defense attorneys and, you know, practices and tactics, tactics that we do that help move the case along or cause headaches or what we can do to, you know, have a smoother resolution or just how to, you know, how to navigate a case with them and what they're looking for. So Dave wanted to come on and talk about it. So let's bring him in. Good afternoon, Dave. Welcome to the Defense Never Rest. I'm so happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So for our listeners and viewers who likely don't know, I've known you for a long time. We went to law school together um, and we actually worked together briefly in the depths of contract review way, way back when. (laughs) That was a crazy job. That was actually a lot of fun. I forgot you were there. You must not have been there that long. You must have bounced early. I don't know. I think we bounced. I think we probably both got out around the same time. Um, but it was, an, an, I would say it was an interesting experience to uh, do contract review. It was fun in the sense that your only job at one point was to not fall asleep. <laughs> I mean, like you could stay awake. Cause you remember there was times where like they, they didn't have any work for us, but they still yes. wanted you to be there. But like you just couldn't sleep. So you had to be there. You had to be available, but just awake, which some people couldn't manage to do. (laughs) And I just it's a very humbling experience to be treated as if you are uh, like less of a person than anybody else on the floor. (laughs) Maybe I wasn't. Maybe I might have been less of a person when I was. It was was crazy. I remember there was a game they were playing like Risk. And there was like risk is like a long game, like and there was a this extravagant table of like risk playing that went on for weeks because we had no work. We still had to be there for like 40 hours. It was yeah, it was crazy. Oh yeah. I remember watching like movies, but then you weren't allowed to have phones or I think that was a time of blackberries. So yes. you, but of course everyone there is looking for like a quote unquote real job while right. while we're you know contract attorneys and but you need your blackberry to like follow up if anyone emails you back to like the probably hundreds of resumes you're sending out it was a real oh. just humbling experience <laughs> remember they had like a computer lab they had like a computer like a internet like cafe thing at the end of the hallway and you like had to like reserve time or something you could only be on there a certain amount of time it was it was crazy. There was interest. There was one guy who worked there who I saw the news representing someone in a criminal case that was still working in the contract. Like he was still showing up for doc review, but yeah. also like on TV for representing someone in a criminal case. It was, it was wild. The characters there were wild. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting. Yes. I think like you're in such close quarters with people and you spend so much time with them. I just remember hating every, like anyone who sat around me, you'd be like, oh, they click their pencil. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm gonna, you know, Sandra's driving me crazy today. <laughs> She's eating <laughs> that apple too loud. 
eating is like a big issue because there's like people are eating there all day just like snacking it was gross i remember one point back to when they weren't where there's no work i never read so many books like i read a book about bananas like the banana trade i read all these books it was i was never more well-read than when i worked in doc review <laughs> and the thing is there's some some people that we've we went to school with who have made like very successful careers in, in that space. Yeah. Um, which is impressive. Like, I, and I, I good for them to, cause I, I mean, there's a certain sect that that's a huge part of, um, you know, review, like discovery review. It just isn't oh, yeah. where I'm working now. <laughs> I mean, that's a massive job when you're managing that, like, you remember how many people, there were hundreds of people in that, on that job someone had to manage that. That's a massive undertaking to manage the work of 300 lawyers or 400 lawyers or whatever. It's a lot. So yeah, yeah I mean, I know who you're talking about and it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's wild. I think that was a newer kind of niche too, when we yes. were getting into it and they kind of just hit it and timed right. And now they're, I think like partners at firms that only yeah. do the doc review, like yeah. managing that part of it. Yeah. Which is, it's pretty awesome, which, you know, if you had told me that would happen going into that, I would have never, I would have never guessed it. <laughs> no. I would never manage anything like successful coming out of like doing anything that we were doing in that job. No. Like, other than like, maybe someone became like a really good writer or like, but not law related. No, no. Yes, exactly. They read enough books like you. They're like, maybe I'm just going to pen my own novel while I'm sitting here waiting for something exactly. to do. But I want to back up a second though, because you know, we both went to Villanova and did you intend, like when you were in college, was law school your automatic next step? Was it something that you were planning on or is it something that you kind of fell into because you didn't have another plan? Yeah, I think kind of a combination of both. At one point I was like really into like Jerry Maguire and I wanted to be a sports <laughs> agent, which is sure. probably like half the guys who went to law school or gals who went to law school. And then um, yeah. like did horrible in school and had to like really get my grades up and test okay to get into law school. Um, but yeah, I kind of had a plan that I was going to go to law school from early on in college for a different yeah. reason than why I'm, what I'm currently doing, obviously. Oh, so what was your reason? Uh, was it the Jerry Maguire reason or? Yeah. You oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I have to say I did share that desire. I remember going into law school wanting to be like some sort of sports agent. Like I, I don't, maybe it must've been the time. Cause I feel like we had a lot of classmates that also had that, those same aspirations. So it must've been the Jerry Maguire movement or something of that, that sort. You know, it's interesting to bring it back to the doc review. One of the guys who sat next to me is actually an NFL agent and he was representing. Really? Wow. Yeah. He actually, that? he was doing it while we were doc reviewing, but just kind of getting it off the ground. But now he's got a, he's got a nice business. Well, good for him. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> so, you know, I kind of fell in the doc review experience because the, some, the, the law firm I had summered at, um, what, like I summered there and then they decided they're not taking any summer associates. And then they thereafter got acquired by some other firm. And I probably would have gotten laid off had I even had I gotten the job, but the time I had no job. So I, that was my only option. The, the job market was crap. Um, you know, what was your experience? Was it similar to, to that, that you had to kind of bide time until you found something else? Yeah. Same exact thing. Like I, we passed the bar, I think the week after we got the bar results, I got hired by whatever company that was, that was running the doc review and I just needed the money. So it was basically yeah. like, just get money in the door while I, I find something else. But I really had no idea what I was going to do any, or what I wanted to do anyway. I was really just 
any legal job I would have accepted. Yeah. And I mean, I remember for myself, like I never thought I'd be in litigation. I kind of fell into litigation because the economy sucked and Mm -hmm. in bad economies, litigation is always active. (laughs) So that's kind of how I fell into it. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I'll tell you, like when I, so my first job I worked at Rand Spear's office, mm-hmm. I never heard of Rand Spear, which is kind of wild if you're in the Philly market, because <laughs> big advertiser, I never heard of him. I didn't know like a coal industry existed on representing people that were hurt. Like that didn't yeah. even cross my mind as like a job that existed, <laughs> not, not the plaintiff side or the defense side. So I yeah. just like saw an ad, I applied and then he hired me and that's what I did, which is good stroke, good luck for me because it, I think it was where I was supposed to be, but Uh, I had no idea. I took the first job that I got. Yeah. Um, And I don't know how much you can talk about your experience there, but I mean, I, I, a lot of us have dealt with brand spear and that that office has a unique way of, I think, staffing cases. Um, So how was that learning experience to you? And to the extent that you can talk about it, um, how was it? So I, I, looking back at Rand's office, um, it's a great training ground for if you want to be in personal injury. We always say, Jason and I, that it's like uh, the DA's office for like personal injury. Like you're in court all day, like your first day there, you're doing depths, you're going to ARBs, like you're trying cases. Um, and now kind of our, it, our mentality with hiring new people is we want people that have worked in that environment. So we've actually hired two lawyers that are ex-Rand, uh, our Spear Greenfield employees. Yeah, uh, because we know they're hitting. You're doing so many depths, so many arbs, trials, expert depths that like you've you've done these reps, and maybe you're only a few years out, but you're you have like the experience of a ten year veteran. Yeah, I mean that is true. I just remember having on the defense side being getting being so frustrated when you want to talk to somebody, like you actually want to talk to somebody that's handling your case, and you couldn't find anyone to talk to. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Part of that is you're just so busy there. Yeah. You're just like the, an average day at Rands is like a dep at 10, a dep at two. So yeah. you're prepping your dep, you're doing the dep, you're hoping to eat something in between the prep of your second, your afternoon dep. So like just getting the phone is just like, you're just running around like crazy. But I mean, they, they're pretty organized and they, they have a reason why they do things, um, which is they just, uh, it's just very busy. Uh, and how long were you there for i was only there for less than two years okay Uh, so i left there i went to uh craig altman's office which is a smaller pi shop and was there for like almost five years yeah well i remember i mean i would see you in court all the like quite frequently and i remember you telling me i think after you left rand spears office that talk to me how like working at rand spears office also kind of taught you how to or gave you an idea how to run your own law practice successfully. Um, and am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I mean, to a degree. I mean, so there's a lot of things that they do. They're very system oriented, um, which we're like system oriented to like the nth degree. We are like all systems. Everything is done for a protocol. We keep stats and KPIs on the, almost everything that we do. Uh, which the basis of that we learned at Rand's office, and we just kind of added our touch to it. And we always say we put it on steroids. We do yeah. that, but on steroids. So we're, we're like, if you don't have our discovery within 10 days, you're getting a 10 day letter. There's going to be a motion filed. It's automated. There's no extensions. There's no, we just do everything. And it's just, the reason we do it is because it's easier for us to keep track of it. If we start getting yeah. extensions, 
and changing our deadlines, then like now we have to refocus our whole machine. But yeah. part of that we learned from brands for sure. Yeah. So, okay. So let's back up though. So then, so you, you started your own firm with, with Jason Manis. So you guys work together at, at Rand's office, right? Yes. Okay. So how did you come about, like, how did you two come together to decide to open up your own firm? Cause that's a huge step and you did it pretty young. I mean, you're, you guys aren't old, you know? No, no I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, yes. Yeah, so Jason and I, uh, we met at Rand's office and then we became like best friends as working there. And then uh, we continue to be best friends since after leaving Rand's, he left Rand's and went to another firm. Um, and then at some point he, which a lot of people you're going to talk to that are in plaintiff side run into maybe a uh, issue with uh, how they're being treated mm-hmm. at a at their firm. And if you have enough of your own business, you can make the decision to go on your own. So Jason and I both kind of ran into the same kind of um, issue and not that they're entitled to make the decision because they were the business owner and I'm, there's, we're all friends, but that I made a decision that that wasn't going to work for me. And Jason did the same thing. And we had always talked about maybe partnering up. Um, luckily when we came together, uh, we had a similar idea how we wanted to run the firm. And then uh, almost as most importantly, we had similar uh, amounts of cases. So it made mm-hmm. it easy to be partners. Cause like we kind of were coming in even and then we did it. So that was that's, about seven years ago. That's awesome. Well, congratulations to both of you. you. And, you know, and now that you're, you know, you're working together with your best friend, you know, how, how is that with like your relationship? Like, do you leave your friendship outside of work? Like I can't imagine. <laughs> no. So we, um, we kind of compartmentalize stuff here. So Jason is mostly like litigation and handling the file, like the cases that are in litigation, I mostly focus on like kind of management and other things. So we stay out of each other's way in that respect, but we also talk all the time on cases. We have a similar uh, view on how the cases should be run Mm -hmm. and um, we've never had an argument ever. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we both kind of agree that like everyone's trying to do what they think is best for the firm and maybe you don't necessarily agree with what they think is the best for the firm, but you can still agree that they think it's the best for the firm. So, you know, we can try it. Right. And it probably helps that you, I mean, you're also like, are you actually now, are you a little more hands off with cases themselves and you have like associates that are really running the ground and you're just kind of upper level management? Yeah. I don't, I don't personally do any cases litigation. Um, Yeah. But like, if there's an issue, like, and people want to talk about, I'm always, you know, I know what's going on. If there's like a settlement offer and we're trying to figure out what, what we want to do with it, or if there's a trial coming up, we'll kind of all get in. But like the day-to-day of the case, I don't, I'm not involved in it at all. Yeah. Um, and is that, is that difficult to take that step back? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate the honesty. <laughs> no, that was, uh, that was what I wanted to do. So, you know, we got to a point where we had all these files and with the people, the staffing that we have, it's just, it's too much to have the person who's kind of managing it also running like as files because like, yeah, as you know, with litigation, like, all right, you got a dep. Well, for me to be out of like communication with the office for three or four hours while I'm in a dep, it just doesn't work because yeah. I just, there's too much going on. Um, and so obviously we hired more staff and associates to handle that. And so it, I, I want, I've been wanting to get out of the litigation part of it because it was taking too much time out of me growing the business. Yeah. 
So one thing I'm curious about before we like dive into our, our real topic here, because I, I always want to pick, you know, plaintiff's attorney's brains on this is clients and like your assessment of a client's case and, you know, the good ones and the bad ones. Like, I mean, what goes into weighing in when you get a, a, client, a new potential new client in, you hear what, what their facts are, what, what goes through your head is be like, is this a case we should take? Is this a case we shouldn't take? Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of qualifiers um, and I think claims people will be interested. Like most case, most people that call us, we only probably take on less than 10% of the people that call us. And yeah. even that 10%, 20% of those cases get dropped before anything happens because they, for whatever reason. Uh, but when we first get a new case, you know, we're looking at to make sure it's obviously something, the practice area that we focus on. Um, the data accident is, is within a reasonable time because if it's close to the statute or whatever, we're not going to want to get involved in that. Then we're looking at, you know, liability and damages. Is it, is it liability clear? Is it not so clear? Are the damages there or, you know, to make up for the fact that liability may not be as clear, but if it's bad liability and not little damages, you know, what are we doing? You know, yeah. do that. But maybe if there's big damages and we think we can come up with something, um, then, you know, we'll take a run at it. But it's mostly like, you know, date, location, you know, different counties, we're going to want different things. Mm-hmm. You know, we practice in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, but a New Jersey case has different little different rules in Pennsylvania. And yeah. we may take a case in PA that we wouldn't take in New Jersey. Um, but that it's date, location, damages, liability, those are the factors. But I think most people would think like, when they talk to lawyers, like, oh, you guys take every case. I'm like, no, it's like, out of 10% that we sign up, only eight of those make it through. And if we file it, we're going to win. I think our, yeah. we lost one case last year. Wow. Good for you. That we filed. Yeah. So like, that's when, like, if we file something, it's, it's already made its way through us so many levels that like, it's a winner. It's just a matter of how much, unless yeah. like, something happens, like they get a subsequent accident or like, they turns out they lied to us or like something that we didn't know about, <laughs> but um, which happens. Yeah. By the time it gets through in the litigation, it's most likely a winner. And and that's interesting to hear because, I mean, because that's a really low, low percentage. Um, Because, I mean, on on my side, I'm not not saying for your firm, I don't even think I've had any cases through your firm, but um, like sometimes I have cases across, come across my desk that I'm like, why is this even in suit? Like why? And why is the demand this much? Um, and that goes to my next, my next question that I'm curious about is what, you know, what is your process with setting a demand? Yeah. I mean, I, I, and when I say this JPTs, I run into demands from plaintiff's lawyers that are just like astronomical and I just don't get it. And it's not helping the process at all. You know, we, we like to make demands that give us room to negotiate. Um, one of the things that we do do that maybe we don't give demands until we have a good faith offer. So until there's an offer that's been presented to us that our client could at some level conceivably take, we will not make a demand. Um, and that's just the way we do things. But in our demands, you know, we look at the treatment, we look at the damages, we look at the county, the economics, and we give ourselves room to, to negotiate. Um, and depending on who we're dealing with, we can be a little bit more to the point. You know, if I had a case right. with you, I'd be like, hey, I'm going to make this demand this is where I think theoretically we could be if you can get me there that I could probably sell the client on taking it, but yeah. we're working with. And like from my, my shoes, I much prefer an interaction like that. Like I, I, 
can't stand when I have everyone's trying to be super cagey and we have to like, oh, we're going to go up 5,000 and then you're going to come down 10. And then we're going like, to, I'd rather have that upfront discussion and streamline the process versus having, you know, eight, you know, 10 back, back and forth interactions that were really not moving the dial at all. I 100% agree. Well, so in this, what I, when we talked about what we we're going to talk about on this, I was like, the biggest thing that I run to with claims adjusters that annoys me is that like they're, they're too robotic and they're like, well, I have to offer you 12.5 when I have 45. I'm like, okay, if you offer me 12.5 and the case is worth 45, we're probably never going to settle it because I'm just going to file a lawsuit because I think we're never going to get there. And then we file it. Then you guys offer the 45 immediately after we file it, which it doesn't make sense to me either. Um, like get to the point, like if you think <laughs> the case is worth 45 and you have 45, offer me something that I conceivably can think that we're going to get there. Cause I'm not going to play the game 5,000 a time to get there. Yeah. For us, we settle the cases for what we think there were not from what you're offering. So if you never get there, it's fine. I'm not insulted, but like, you know, the claims process is to try to resolve cases. So you have to like put a little effort into it and not be as robotic and, and you have to pick up the phone. That's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. So, you know, and I think, and I think I'm generalizing, but I think at the outset, sometimes at the initial receipt of suit or not suit or claim that some adjusters might be, you know, they, they don't initially want to pick up the phone and call counsel, but I think it's for a variety of reasons. I think sometimes they have some counsel who are like rude to them. They have some counsel who like, you know, I, I think the rude one is probably what happens the most. So they have, you know, um, but I do think, you know, actually talking to someone really gets you a lot further than exchanging emails. Let's face it. Lawyers don't like to put anything in writing that we don't actually have to put in writing. Yeah. We, I don't negotiate on email um, unless it's like I'm close and someone said, Hey, let's say they offer 22 and I think it's worth 25. I'm like, you give me 25. We'll take it today. Like something like yeah. that. But it, it does, it's not, um, doesn't help the settlement a five minute phone conversation can get the case done if the adjuster has the authority to do it um, and is reasonable. But a lot of like progressive, for instance, it's not even worth talking with them. They are just so robotic and they'll start every case at $1,500. I'm like, well, if my case is worth 200,000 and you offer me 1500, like you're going to get hung up on, like, there's just, there's no point in my wasting any more energy on it. Like, yeah, so we don't even attempt to settle cases with them anymore. Um, it, it's, it's completely pointless. But yeah, on the other it, hand, some of them are really easy to deal with. Yeah, I and that was something I was going to ask later, but I'll jump into it now because I'll forget. Um, you know, when you when you have a claim and then you you find out, you know, who or what entity the the insurer is, do, do you have sometimes an immediate reaction like like you just had with Progressive, like I'm not going to get anywhere with this, or yeah. or I've never dealt with them before, so maybe this will be better. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, here's what I tell clients too, other than progressive and maybe Liberty Mutual, I tell the same thing to clients when I sign them up. They're like, what's my case going to settle for? How much is it going to settle for? One, I can never tell you that because I have no idea what your case is worth until later on. But once we get closer to like when we send the demand pack out, I'm like, you could have two adjusters from the same company sitting right next to each other. One may pick up the phone all the time and be reasonable. The one next to them, you may never get a hold of. And when they get a hold of them, they offer you something that you could never accept. So it's hard for me to predict outside of progressive and Liberty mutual that have like this, the plan not to settle cases, but yeah, I mean, another random insurance company are usually easier to deal with because they have smaller claims units and the claims personnel is, um, 
more sophisticated maybe yeah and um they can sorry <laughs> the um i gotta turn my phone off um so the claims why you can't leave the office and you can't take depositions <laughs> i know well I, I thought i turned my phone off um it's like blowing me up here but um so like a, a person and you probably see this is like some of the claims people maybe have more experience or they have more authority within their insurance company to make decisions. And those people I can settle a case with in 10 minutes and nine of them are bullshitting about are talking about something unrelated to the case because they yeah. get it and they can like, and we're reasonable and they, we get the case done. Let's just back up. So if you could give us some advice to say you have a, a newer claims adjuster, who's getting your, a claim with you, with you or some other office for the first time, um, you know, what would be your first step of advice of how, how they could get that? Because let's face it, all claims adjusters or most claims, you want them to be closed, you know, that, that you don't want a lingering claim. So what advice would you give from step one to be like, this is the best way when you get this to start off on the right foot and we can move this in a, a reasonable direction. So we get it done for a good number. Not, okay. not just a number that works for you, but a number that's good for all. Of course. And that's the only way the case is going to settle if everybody's happy with because the yeah. claims aren't going to offer something that they're not ultimately happy with. Um, so from the from initial opening of a claim, I would say they don't have to do anything. Just respond, send us a letter or an email with your information, your email, your phone number, and that's it. Because at the initial part of the case, we, we, don't, we don't know what we have yet because typically we get a case and maybe they have been treated or they just started treating. So we don't really know. Um, it's really when we're interested with the claims professional is after we send the demand pack, the first thing would be like acknowledging that you received it. Like, cause mm -hmm. half the time we get, we send them out and like, Oh, we never got it. I'm like, well, we emailed it to you. Like it didn't bounce back. Like, why didn't you get it? <laughs> this is the email that you told us worked for you. Um, and like, Hey, if the adjuster switches the file, maybe like, letting us know would be helpful and picking up the phone so we can confirm that that's the adjuster on the file, confirm the email or the address, wherever we're sending. That's like, believe it or not, like 50% of the battle of getting a case settled is getting the demand pack to the adjuster. Yeah. They just aren't available. Um, after that, you know, what we do is we give the adjusters like 30 days to look over the demand pack, which we think is a reasonable amount of time mm -hmm. to make a decision on the case. If you hear back earlier, let us know. And if you don't and you need more time, you know, like try to be reasonable with this. Cause we have clients that are asking us what's going on with their files too. Um, but yeah. once we get to this settlement, it's like, all right, like you've looked at it, you have, you're prepared to like make an offer or you're prepared to say you're not going to make an offer, which is okay too. It just, we just want to know that's kind of the thing. So like be prepared to, to answer them, be available by phone. Once the offers are kind of coming, I always say like, once we get an offer and it's kind of in the realm where I think we can settle it, like we could probably get it settled that day if you're available. Cause I could yeah. probably get the client available and be like, all right, just pick up the phone and we'll bounce back and forth a couple of times and get it done. Yeah. That's availability and responsiveness is probably like number one complaint with the justers. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do think a part of the factor is too, I mean, it, like just like you or, or your associates, they have a lot on their plate too. Like that, and they have a lot of claims um, to run through on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's why we give the thirty days, which I think is reasonable. Yeah, and then also like, I'm not offended by someone saying they're not going to pay. Like, if you're going to deny a claim, just deny it. Deny from the get go. Like, 
I'm not offended by that. Like people have views, different views on how the case is going to go. And that's why there's court. But yeah. just let us know. Cause then we'll like just file it and not waste our time sending a demand back or let the clients kind of get their expectations in line. Yeah. And I mean, client expectations has to be such a huge part of like, of what you do behind the scenes, because you could try to manage your client's expectations, but that doesn't mean your client isn't going to have unreasonable expectations. So, you know, how do you work on your end to try to get your client like in, or your clients to be in a, in our stratosphere of reasonable expectations? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I would say most of the clients are come into it and be like, you're the expert. You're the person who sees this claim all the time. We're going to respect that you're looking out for our best interests and your opinion on the case. Because ultimately, the way plaintiff's cases work is the more money they get, the more money I get. So whenever we're trying to get expectations, like, listen, if I could get you $10 million on your case, I would love to do it. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, it's only worth 30 grand. So <laughs> this is what we're working with. And then you kind of run the, the pros and cons. Like, hey, you can take this money. Um depending on where we are at the case. Like you won't have to pay the $5,000 to do the doctor's dep. You won't have to go to trial and spend a week doing trial and costing us another thousand dollars for the playback. And especially on a smaller case. Yeah. And then there's no risk. So are you the person that goes to the casino and bets it all on black? Or are you the person that says, no, I want to take my money and go home. And yeah. once we get to the point that we've kind of said like, listen, this is the number that is in the realm of reasonable. You start having that conversation. And then some clients appreciate it and respect it. And some, they want more than they think it's worth, but we don't really run into that problem too much. It's, uh, it's usually just getting the money is from the, yeah. the clients that, usually kind of listen. Uh, that's what I was going to ask. Cause some, I mean, I've been in situations that I've talked to counsel and they they, they've discussed me like, look, I'm recommending this number that you have but my client is not taking it. So (laughs) it certainly happens. Um, it's infrequent. Um, but it happens. We usually just work our way through it. Like it's usually time and maybe like, it's usually like a case where like, if it goes to trial, there's like a risk of losing. Like if it's a rear end car accident, they're full tour, like that case settles because they get to a number. If it's a slip and fall and maybe there's a liability dispute, I'm like, listen, like you could lose this case very easily. Or you could say like, if the case is worth a hundred, but they ding you for 20% of contrib, then you're only getting 80 plus the 10 grand. We got to do to try the case. Now you're like, where are we? Like, yeah, kind of work it down. But that also goes back to us. Like we wouldn't recommend the number until it was a number that like made sense in light of all the factors that could go against it. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. Like any, any side, if you're going to trial the the costs, that you have to have real discussions about costs because yeah. suddenly now you're paying experts to be there. You you're paying your time to your time to be there. You're prepped to be there. I mean, it, it just gets expensive on both sides. Albeit sometimes necessary though. I mean, sometimes you have to go to trial. I mean, you're just not going to meet in the middle. Yeah. I mean, I always think for your, on your end, it's probably like a cost is maybe a, a different conversation because for our end, obviously the clients don't pay us like hourly rates they just pay like the expert you know if we lose or if we win that comes out of the settlement um but for your like you try a case you're there for a week plus prep that could come into a big bill plus the experts plus they could lose and depending on what type of case it is may expose like to like some bad face some excess stuff going on um there's a little bit more to factor in on that 
yes on our end yeah um so one thing i wanted to to move to is okay so get you you get to the point that you, you filed you filed suit um what type of response like responses to complaints are worthwhile for defense counsel to to put the time and energy in and what what types of responses do you find like are not worthwhile like like for instance like preliminary objections like i think sometimes are worthwhile but other times it's just why are why are you filing preliminary objections (laughs) i mean i i agree i think that if listen, if it's a rear end car accident and just answer the complaint, like you don't have to call, just answer it. And I would answer it within 20 days because we're going to file a 10 day and we're going to take a default. Um, if it's something where you want to PO, I was like, hey, call. There's probably, we probably agree to it because our complaints, we kind of veer everything and then like yeah. leave it up to, you know, the facts to come out. You know, some of the stuff we might agree to take out without prejudice. Um, some of the stuff we may agree to just to take out. You know, I don't know if you got a call to find out it's definitely worth calling rather than file POs because you're not really doing your insured a service by like wasting time on something we probably could agree on. Yeah. I think it's, and like, if the party spelled wrong, like let us know so we can just amend it or like agree to step it out, step the change. But other than that, it's just, if it's something simple, we could probably agree to it. If it's, something more fact specific, you know, we'll probably, you probably have to PO that, but it's definitely worth a phone call. Yeah. I mean, I've always erred on calling about POs, but then sometimes like not for nothing, there are some counsel out there that are real jerks about it. And they're like, Nope, Nope. Not going to take that out. <laughs> it's like, yeah. All right. I guess we're going to have to go through this exercise <laughs> and see what yeah, happens. I mean, that's kind of the same, same deal. Like if, if there's something reasonable that you think is not relevant to the case that you want to call, we'll probably agree to take it out because we just, we have a standard form that we file for every complaint. And maybe there's something in there that like a rule violation, but there wasn't a rule violation. So you yeah. want to stick that. Out. Okay, fine. You know, well, unless we have one that we cited specifically, okay, you could take that out. But Filing POs is just a waste of time because we'll just file an amended complaint and take it out. And then you just wasted your time filing the right. POs. It's stupid. Yeah, it's, so, it's so dumb. I, it drives me crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. it, and there's like some things on POs that I'm like, okay, I wouldn't, nor- I wouldn't PO on this on its own. But if I'm filing POs on this other issue, then, you know, I, I sometimes tack on something else that I probably would have called about. But the other issue is not something that you would like, say there's like an arbitration agreement or something like there's not going to be, I'm not going to call you and you're probably not going to agree. So we're going to have to, I'm going to have to file something on that, but you know, other issues sometimes can just be fixed. Yeah. I mean, we were um, in terms of like just streamlining, like the litigation, but we were, we were one of our associates just about to go to trial last week. And I was like, listen, before you go in there, try to work everything you can out, like call the attorney, like make a phone call. Like agree to uh, the verdict sheet, agree to the point to charge, agree to all this stuff. So then when you show up, it's done. And the same thing kind of goes with the pleadings. Like the more you can just streamline and get to like, yes. hey, these are the facts of the accident. These are the damages claimed. Like, let's just focus on those two things. The quicker you'll get the claim resolved. Because what happens, what we're finding is that we're defaulting so many people or getting them precluded from testifying that like, they're not even getting to that because we're just knocking people out early in the case. Yeah. Who aren't responsive. And, you know, I don't see that a lot. So that's like a, that's a pretty aggressive approach that, that you're taking that. I mean, I haven't, 
I, I really haven't seen much of it as of recent. So it's working for you. Yeah. I mean, again, we do it because it's automated and it's just yeah. easier for us to keep track of, but yeah, we do get people precluded and we do take defaults. Um, but like they deserve it because there's plenty of opportunity to like file the answer. And we even send the 10 day letter to the adjusters. And if they don't yeah. respond then like, don't know what to tell you. Like we got double policy limits on a case not too long ago. Wow. Good. Um, because we default, I sent the, the 10 day notice 10 times to the adjuster. She never responded. <laughs> so, okay. If we're going to, other than, you know, adjusters like responding to you, um, and picking up the phone and talking, talking to you, you know, what other tactics do you see that you, you, know, you find aren't moving the ball forward, aren't moving you anywhere towards resolving or, or just putting a bad taste in your mouth that, you know, you're like, forget them. I'm just not going to deal with them anymore. Yeah. So the big thing is like telling me about my case. <laughs> the adjuster calls and says like, all right, so like, he had a prior. I'm like, okay, like, is it relevant? Did you run the ice? Like, did you get the reports? Like, no, I'm like, okay, so why are you telling me about it? Like, don't tell me about the case. Like we're, we're come to the point where like, we're trying to get the case resolved. It's a numbers game only. You're not going to talk me out of taking the case. You're not going to talk me out of like filing a lawsuit. Either you're willing to settle or you won't. So like, let's get to that. That annoys me. But that's yeah. again, going back to like that adjuster who is so robotic that they're just following the list of things they have to do like just talk like a human like we can be normal if you don't want to pay that's fine i res i can accept that too but if you are let's just do it but or yeah. if you're not just let's just do it just tell me not yeah um what about like motion practice like summary judgment motions are they like the bane of your existence when one comes across yeah i mean they're for the most part they're fairly similar the ones we get um it's like usually a premises case usually on notice or something on that uh, we did have one that was a little off but um they're not so bad i don't do them anymore either so it's <laughs> you don't care so, but it does slow down the process because it's you don't do a lot of writing in litigation there's not like a ton of writing so the big writing comes up in summary judgment um so i tell the young guys and gals i'm like i can't wait for you to get a summary judgment motion because now you're going to be an expert on that Whatever that case is about, you once you write the summary judgment motion, you're now an expert on that like hills and ridges doctrine or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> so they're they're okay. I mean, I get it why people file it, and I'm not. It's fine. It's just another yep. thing to do. Yeah, um, I had I had one an argument on one the other week, and I was talking to plaintiff's counsel ahead of time, and he he was like oh, you had to make me, I hate writing so much. And then I had to, and he's like, and it was two defendants. So, and we both filed some, he's like, I had to respond to both of you. Like what a pain in my butt. Uh, I'm like, sorry. Like I told you it was coming. Like, I mean, I flat out told him like, look, we will be filing a summary judgment motion on this case. Like, it's just, I have to do it. it right. And he understood it. And that was the other thing that I, I'm curious how you feel about this. Cause you know, I had had a conversation with this attorney up front. I was like, look, I'm looking at this as a summary judgment case. What other discovery are you going to do? Because I just want to know ahead of time. So I don't file this summary judgment motion. And then you respond like, oh, wait, we're not done with discovery. You know, he's like, oh, I appreciate that. You know, I'm going to get this expert and I want this other depth and then I'll be done. Um, you know, do you appreciate that type of interact? Even I know you're not responding to these motions anymore, but I feel like that streamlines it and cuts out a lot of the BS. Like, yeah, it also may knock out the reason for even filing it. 
Like yes. if there's another discovery comes in and you're like, all right, well, I waste all this time filing summary judgment, but then they took a dep and then now notice is out. Like whatever. Yeah, I, th- I think that's smart. I don't think that anyone's ever done that with me. So really, <laughs> <laughs> but like we don't get a ton of summary judgment motions. Like it's not that plentiful, um, and you can kind of anticipate what cases they're coming on. But like some of them are like a waiver on like a amusement park case. They're gonna file like a yeah summary judgment on that. But we have that response, so it's just like oh yeah, the waiver response. Okay, yeah, that's the one we use ten other times. So we'll we'll <laughs> basically just kind of tailor it to that. Um, but I think that's a good move. I mean, definitely, definitely call for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it was in, in this particular instance, it's one of those, like, th- I know uh, it's a hundred percent going to happen. I can't walk. And, it, and I take that. Ven- I mean, I always take venue into account. If I'm in a certain, certain venues, I'm not going to file a summary judgment motion, regardless of how strong I think it is, because once any opposition is filed, I know it's going to get denied. Like, Sight unseen. <laughs> so well, you know, on your end, maybe they don't file a response. I bet that yeah, happens. It does happen sometimes. Yeah, and that's a shame. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, in Philly, you know, you're filing a summary judgment motion is not as advantageous as doing it in Bucks County. So yeah. it's you gotta, yeah, I get it. I mean, I and I get it why people file. We're not offended by it. You know, you got to do your job just like we got to do ours. So you file it, file it. You know, it's we get it. Yeah. How do you view them though as a leverage, a leveraging tool for a settlement? Yeah, it's smart. I mean, they they that, that happens. That those are the cases that happen. They file it right before the JPT conference or like discovery ends, file a JPT conference scheduled, but the summary judgment motion hasn't been ruled upon. Um, depending on the strength of the like liability, it can almost be helpful for us at some level with dealing with the with our client. Because if our client has like those outsized expectations, we're like, well, there's this motion coming. We don't know what's going to happen with it. And you may want to take a discount on what you think the case is worth. Cause if you get blown out on summary judgment, like it's over. Yeah. So I think it's smart on, on the claims. And like, if you've got a reasonable chance of doing it of winning, then I would do it. Now, that being said, we have seen some nonsense summary judgment motions <laughs> where we file motion. We file a response asking for sanctions. Cause it's just a joke. <laughs> we, we ask for a lot of sanctions around here. <laughs> And, well, and I imagine in Philly, you might be more successful than, than other, other venues. <laughs> yeah. I think Philly just is like a wild, wild west, like courts. It's just kind of anything goes and people file like nonsense. Like this one case, I've never heard of the things they're filing. Like they're creating like new recipes and motions and stuff. I'm like, it's like not a motion for reconsideration. It's like a motion to like reconsider reconsideration or something like something. Yes. <laughs> I'm like you lost dude it's like twice like it's over like yeah sometimes it's hard that. to take sometimes it's hard to take that that denial though <laughs> all yeah, the way home. it's like for a depth like it's not even like a it's not a, in contest like we're getting it yeah well well one thing i'm curious though that reminds me of is in like discovery court in, in philly it when you talk about wild wild west i think there's no other place that's more wild wild west than discovery yeah. court in philly because you can have, at least in my eyes, ha- I can have a very valid point on a motion, and then you get up there and argument, argument from whatever judge, and the judges does whatever they want. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess that's what judges can do, but it's almost like why are we going through the motions of filing these motions when really the outcome is completely arbitrary, and we we have no idea what's really going to happen. 
Yeah, I mean, I, we have the same issues. So our biggest thing will happen, like we'll file a motion for whatever discovery you compel, granted, sanctions granted, then we get the preclusion and we don't get that order. So like we'll file six motions to get, and there's, we still have discovery. I'm like, all right, well, at some level, at some point we have to get them precluded because there's no penalty for them. And yeah. there needs to be some sort of repercussions for them not participating in what the courts deem they have to do pursuant to the rules of civil procedure. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes we get it done in the first motion. Sometimes it takes a six or seven motions to get that preclusion order entered. And that to me is not right. Like if they haven't been able to do it in like three motions and they're never going to do it. And why should we have to keep trying? And same on your end. If like you guys are filing motion and the client's not participating, like knock them out. Like, yeah, they yeah. don't want to do their case anymore. Yeah. I mean, I have had that happen a few times that when plaintiff's counsel is just like doing nothing on their case. And yeah. then I, I forget what the motion is called. That's like a non, like non failure to lit, yeah, or failure to litigate too happens if they like in other counties they don't have the short discovery deadlines like Philly that you can just try to kick it out that way. But sometimes it wakes them up too. They're like, oh wait, I have this file over here. I need to, <laughs> I need to do something on it. Yeah, I mean that's really a disservice to the clients, and that yeah, that's what we try to avoid doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, a lot of the stuff in our conversation today is just being responsive. If you're responsive in this industry, like you're gonna accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. I mean that, and that's yeah. answering discovery. And most of discovery court is just failure to act. It's not like we don't agree yeah. that we should do it. It's you just haven't done it. Um, that's what we run into. We're like, listen, we want the discovery. We're entitled to it. And maybe they can't find their insured. That's not our problem. Like you're a billion dollar insurance company, go hire someone to find them. I don't know. What to, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. If our guys get can't if we can't find our guys, we'll withdraw from the case because how are we gonna put take the case to trial if our guy doesn't show up? Yeah, it's precluded, so we're done. So in in your eyes, though, if you have a case and you have multiple defendants, is that more of a headache or is that helpful from a resolution standpoint? Or a little bit of both? Yeah, probably a little both. Yeah. Depending on like who's really at fault. And this goes back to the kind of the cost, like, hey, if, if there's five defendants on like a premises case and one guy is kind of the big player, but the other ones are kind of involved, but they all have lawyers. If we try the case, they're all paying the same amount of fees for prepping for trial. So depending on the value of the case, you may be able to get the case resolved because there's more pockets to go after. Um, but then you have five summary judgments to respond to and five depths and five whatever yeah. to respond to. But or, or all these entities at depths, like sometimes that can be like the world's worst nightmare when you have so many extra people in the room. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what are some things that you've you've seen that you that you've seen from either defense counsel or an adjuster do that like you you're like, oh, that was a really, really smart move or that, you know, that that, that was something surprising I haven't seen before and it worked. Huh. I don't know. It's You're going to give people ideas now too. Yeah, I, know. I, mean, <laughs> I think the, I can't think of one specific thing. I'm like, Oh, that's crazy. That I can't believe they did that. But like the big thing with like, to me with that, I would give to claims adjusters is that like, if you offer what you think the case is worth, but offer like a little bit less, get us right to the point where like, we just stupid for us to keep going. Because if you're going to pay it later on, just get it done now and save yourself the cost. Yeah. Um, because that's when the clients will take them. I'm like, hey, if the case is worth 50, but you offer 45, I'm like, 
are 42. I'm like, all right, well, like, you're not really making that much more money for holding out for another year to hope to get eight more grand. Right. Whereas if you're the claims adjuster, you just save eight grand in settlement plus the legal fees and doing it. Yeah. And, you know, on, on your side, do you find there is like, uh, this happens a lot on, and you probably know this, but when towards the end of the year, you know, adjusters and council talk like, oh, well, it's the end of the year. We want, we want to get this, but maybe we could try to get this done at, uh, for a discount before the holidays. Is that a real thing? Like, does that really work? <laughs> I don't think, I mean, I never, I don't think it's ever a discount. I, I think maybe at some point you find that adjusters are more available, but I also think it's probably because they take two weeks off for the holidays and like have to work a little harder to get the cases done. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. There's no discount. There's no time discount. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it always comes up either when you're talking to other counsel or, you know, you're talking to certain adjusters, they're like, oh, well, you know, Christmas is coming up. So wouldn't it be nice if, you know, maybe if we try to get this done before Christmas, you know, they'll be more inclined to settle it now and have money for the holidays. I mean, again, that kind of goes back to what I was saying. Like, if you offer a number that's kind of close to where we think it should be, and we're like, okay, like you're going to get it now as opposed to waiting another year, then yeah, you'll, they may take it, you know, but it has to be in a realm for at least for us where we think it's like not unreasonable to take it. If the case is worth 50 and you offer 20, well, we're not going to take it. If you offer 40, I'm like, okay, like, is it worth you hanging out for another year to make an extra however much minus our cost and fees? I don't know. You may want the yeah. money now, but that's, that's the adjusters that are most effective with us get you to that point. Um, and now I'm thinking back on your comment that you don't, you don't give demands until you have an offer good and faith. good faith offer. So what is like, what is your reasoning behind that? A uh, couple things. One, I don't want to waste my time, like mm -hmm. dealing with something that's never going to settle. Um, I'm not trying to help the adjuster document their file for something that isn't going to help our case settle. Um, and I don't want to pin myself down to something that may change later on. Um, now, when I mean good faith offer, I'll give you an example of a bad faith offer. The client has 10 grand in bills and they offer five grand. Sure. Okay. So the client has to pay me, we have costs and they have to pay their medical bills. They're never signing that. So yeah. that's not, there's no, that's not an offer yet. You, it's not an offer until it's something they could potentially make money on to get money on like paying us and the doctor's bills or getting their lost wages back isn't that's not a settlement so like that's what i mean by that yeah um because i'm on my side i see i feel it's equally as frustrating if you have a case that say it's like i don't know a rotator cuff tear with surgery and you know the initial demand is like eight hundred thousand. you're like okay well like where, where you get, do you have $200,000 of bills to put on the table? Like Maybe. those, <laughs> yeah, sure. Of course it, it can happen. Yeah. But from my eyes, I'm like, well, that's, it's equally as much as a non-starter because, you know, if you're already all the way up there, you know, like, how do I even, like, especially if it's pre-suit, like, how do we even respond to that pre-suit when you're, you start off so high? I wouldn't, I would just not respond if I were. An insurance company yeah. but yeah. i mean that we don't give demands in our demands we just send the records and we wait to hear back but i mean i think from your point early on is like if you get that case in litigation and the claim adjuster forwards that demand to you oh they demanded eight eight hundred grand in pre i'm like why don't you call us and be like hey you guys demanded 800 i kind of see the case hypothetically 
you know, in whatever range you think it is, is that something you think you can get to like, and not hold, not holding you to it. Like, and if you can, maybe we can get rid of it. I don't know. But yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it boils down to having those, those types of conversations and not being afraid to have those conversations. And I think attorneys and adjusters sometimes are, are hesitant because like, well, what if I say this and then I'm going to get held to it later. And reality, we're all trying to like, get a feel for wh- where you are without saying, yes, hundred percent, I will do that. Right. And I always say the hypothetical and I always offer that to the adjusters. I'm like, listen, I'm not going to hold you to it. What's your hypothetical best offer? So I can even see if I can get this done. And then I'm not going to hold you to it. And if she doesn't, you know, if we can't get it solved and are we settled then forget it. Yeah. But that's a good way for me, at least that I've found to like, let's just get there. Hypothetically, I think the case is worth 200. Okay. Let me talk to my client. Okay. Hypothetically, we could take 200 you would say, all right, let me go get 200. I'm like, okay, we're settled at 200. Like you're, yeah, yes. Yeah. But you can do it without like holding yourself to it. And listen, demands are subject to change. Things can happen during the course of the case. Maybe sure. they had a subsequent surgery or uh, we got a wage law or a life care plan or economist and that boosted that $200,000 case up to 500,000. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned the experts because that was one of the things I want to talk to you about because, you know, <laughs> Expert retention is such, I don't know, it's a thing. So like, I know it depends on what cases you have, depending on how you decide what experts um, you retain. But for you, it is money to put out up front. So you really have to have a reason to bring on that expert if you want to pay, pay their fees. So, you know, walk me through like your, your thought process on like, okay, do, do we need a life care plan on this one? Do we need to spend the X amount it is to retain that that individual for this case, or can we go without it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's one, it depends on like the, the quality of the case. So if the liability is good and the damages justify someone needing a life care plan, then we'll have to look at whether the policy limits of the insured are there to justify the cost. So if it's a $15,000 case, we can't spend three grand on a life care plan to get 50. Like no. it's just, it wouldn't make any sense. Now, if it's a premises case or a case against like a commercial trucking and there's, we know there's coverage and the, and the damages justify having the report, which is the main thing. Like if the injuries aren't there and they don't need any more treatment, then there's no point in getting a life care plan. But if the person like has a herniation or whatever, and they had surgery and they may need further injections or whatever, and there's the policy in place to justify the cost at the end, then that's when we would do it. But you're really yeah. looking to see if all those things kind of have to add up. So yeah. Because I've had so many scenarios that it's not a great case. And then I get, I get all these expert reports and I'm like, why are they spending all this money on these experts? Are they doing it just to boost the bottom line? And sometimes I feel like that, that is the case. Like let, let's get the line up these six experts. So I, now I already, I can set like, I, I, I've, my bottom line is now here because I have this person saying this and this person saying that. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's a strategy. That's not one that we like to do because it just, I, to me, logically doesn't make sense. If the, if the injuries don't justify it, then you got the life care plan. You just look kind of like a fool. Like no one's going to believe that the person needs that if they don't believe the underlying injury is needs that. So yeah. for us, when we work, work I mean, we will do it when we, we think it's right. I would do it on every case if it meant that it was the right thing for every case, but it's just not. And no. getting an expert just to get an expert it just costs you money. It, it, I don't think it helps. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I even think about it on the defense side, like sometimes just because, you know, the plaintiff might retain this expert doesn't mean we need to automatically get a rebuttal expert for that expert. <laughs> like oh. sometimes it's not necessary. Well, that's, that's the thing I run into with defense. Like, let's say it's a broken leg from a car accident and they had surgery, like at the emergency room from the accident. Do you really need a report to say that the surgery is related? Of course it's related. <laughs> like why spend the money on it? Like, yeah, just, yeah, it's related. Yeah. Maybe you get a report to say that like, he's fine, but like, why challenge, why even have someone comment on it? Like, I don't get it. Right. And I, I agree with that too. Like it's like some, but that's also a, a check the boxes approach that I think some, you know, defense counsel have too. like, okay, well they got an expert. So then I need to get an expert. Well, not necessarily. Like you have to look at the whole picture and, you know, yeah. Are we really, are we contesting causation? If we're not contesting causation and say this, this plaintiff said they, you know, they're feeling great and they can, you know, basically resume their normal activities, then maybe we don't need to spend, you know, $1,200 on an expert to say that they resume their normal activities. Like that. <laughs> I mean, if, if you have a plaintiff that resumed their normal activities and they said that in the depth, getting an expert, unless you're challenging causation is 100% a waste of time. Cause all you're doing is giving me now two doctors that say the accident's really yeah. Yeah, relate to the accident. So it's right. like it, helping you up. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, which happens a lot. And I think it is that checking the boxes, like we have to do this. And I don't know if that's coming from the lawyer or from the adjuster, depending on maybe the company making that decision. Um, but we see that too, a lot. Like you don't need it. No. And sometimes I think that comes from from on a defense side inexperience or also just not being taught to like you don't have to run down the sheet and do all the things on the sheet just because there's those things on the sheet to do like you know sometimes you might not need to even take the plaintiff step maybe the you know you could just again pick up the phone and talk to you and be like okay like maybe we can get this done without anything more yeah i i think in most i don't know like if the case is like a clear cut liability case and you're just going on damages and you don't have like a limited tort argument to make, like there's no harm in like reaching out like, Hey, like I got your medical records. Like, is this one we can get rid of? Like, here's, we, I think the case is worth 50 grand. What do you think? Hypothetically? Like, okay. Like, are we on the same page? If you, assuming you have the money, but I think a lot, I think you're right is that people don't think they're going to get in trouble if they get an IME or DME, we call it defense medical exam. Mm-hmm. Um, but so if they get it, they won't get in trouble. If they don't get it and the trial goes bad, we're like, oh, you didn't get a defense medical exam. It may have nothing to do with it, but right. at least they can say like that they, they got it. They did everything they were supposed to do. It's called the CYA approach. Correct. Which isn't necessarily <laughs> bad, which no. isn't like, it's not a horrible thing to say. Cause I may say a trial that you could have gotten a doctor to say that my client wasn't hurt and he didn't do it. So yeah. You think that my client was hurt. Yeah. Of um, course you're going to say that. <laughs> but uh yeah i mean you just have to have kind of the guts and the um confidence to make the decision on a case-by-case basis as opposed to just like every case needs this every case needs that like it just doesn't like yeah. especially if you're trying to resolve claims so how does the credibility of your clients as well as the credibility of like the de- defendants like how does that sway sway your evaluation yeah that that's huge Um, I think a nice client is better served than a really hurt client. The Mm -hmm. nice client is going to do better than the really hurt client. That's a jerk. 
um, even on like the intake stage in our in our office, um, our intake team, I'll ask them, I'm like, is the person a nice person? Because if the, if the case isn't like that, if it sounds a little funky and the, and the person's really nice, okay, now we can work with that because later on they're going to be likable, incredible, and we're going to be able to work with them. If they're a jerk already on the phone with us day one, they're not our, they're not for us. Um, so yeah. I think goes both ways. Like if a defendant's really nice and really credible and like they just tell the truth and they're straightforward, then the jury's not going to want to punish them. But if they're evasive and they're a jerk and I can make them more of a jerk, then that's better for us, obviously. But yeah, yeah I mean, our client's credibility and likability is, is as important as damages at trial. Yeah, I, I will say I had a, a trial many years ago against your, your old, old firm. And my client was, came off so less than credible. <laughs> And it was an arbitration appeal. So, I mean, already, like, this case was not worth a, a ton. And this person was so bad, like, it, it was terrible. I got smacked. <laughs> I got, I, and I think I was, like, eight and a half months pregnant, too. And I came back crying from my office. Like, I, I got, it was the worst. But, it, and I truly believe it was the the plaintiff was very credible and came off like a very nice individual. And my client came off as a very dishonest, <laughs> like no good record keeping. Like it, just, it was just terrible. And I, I, I think that I think the jury just did not like my client and thought they were a liar and just smacked it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a huge factor in it. You know, the more likable our client is, the more dislike the defendant is, the easier it is for them to get their heads around giving our client money. Yeah, uh, but it's yeah, it's a big factor and anything that we can do to make defendants look uh horrible we're willing to do so. yeah of course you know, the big bad company or the big bad you know individual whatever it could be Listen, these companies don't do themselves any favors they're so poorly run they're just asking for it half the time just, <laughs> i don't feel bad for them like i had one guy in a slip and fall case in an apartment complex and like they didn't get to like my client's area to like and she slipped and fell and she like fractured her knee or something and she's like, oh, our complex is so big, we can't get to it. I'm like, hold on. So you're saying that your complex is so big because you have so many units and you're getting rent on so many units that you can't afford to pay for like the proper cleaning service? How do you think that case went? Like, what yeah. an answer. Yeah, that was a good one for you. <laughs> that one did not try. <laughs> <laughs> but have have you ever had a scenario that, that you're in a, you know, a deposition with your own client and your client says something asinine that you're like, shit, like, like that just totally changed the course of this. How do, how do I recover? Yeah. I mean, all, I mean, we try to like correct it in, yeah. in depth, but like, for instance, on like a case where like a slip and fall, these are like the harder depths. What'd you fall in? I, I, I don't remember. What do you mean you don't remember? You just told me you fell on this for the last two hours. Now you don't remember when you're in the room. If you don't remember, your case is over. So like they, that kind of stuff or like like being evasive for no reason, I think from our clients, like, you know, we give them instructions. Like, you know, if you don't know the answer, tell them you don't know. If you don't remember, tell them you don't remember. But like within reason, like, like I guess – that, that's kind of the big, the slip and fall one. But I will yeah. nitpick you a little bit on defense. Why do the people always ask what kind of shoes our clients are wearing? Like, what does that matter? Like I, last time I checked, I've never been to a store that said like, it, it just says you have to wear shoes. It doesn't tell you what kind of shoes. 
Well, I <laughs> and who remembers what shoes they wore two years ago? A lot of people, they a lot of them save them. Like I've no. had I've had plaintiffs, well, they, or they come with the shoes that they were wearing. But I, I think a lot of that runs out of, you know, if it's a a snowy day and they're wearing like flip flops or if it's a rainy day, like shoes that don't have any sort of tread on them and the weather can, the shoes aren't appropriate for the weather conditions. So it goes with what a reasonable person might do. I guess there's such a dumb, <laughs> like oh, that, I- like <laughs> who remembers? I don't remember what shoes I wore yesterday, let alone like two years ago. Like, come on. Um, I mean, I wouldn't probably remember, but maybe you would if you were in an accident and you fall and it's that traumatic, you're probably going to remember the shoes that you were wearing. Hmm. And the, well, the best part is sometimes the, the accident report will re- say what type of shoes and then they remember, they say something different. And now, now you have a credibility issue. Yeah. If you can get, if they made a report. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like half the time or less. I don't well, know. It's always a funky issue with those well but that that is something that comes up uh on my end a lot though you have you know i see a lot of plaintiffs who don't report the accident like they say they fall outside the store and they don't go in and tell anybody and to me that's a red flag yeah it's a red flag for us i mean if you've got like an unreported accident like that let, let's correct if they went to the emergency room right from there i'm like okay they went to the emergency room like they didn't go report it because they were in so much pain they just wanted to get to that medical provider sure but like you know they don't report it and then a week later they go to the emergency room I'm like okay like Mm-mm. you're setting yourself up for is- issues already and and i'm believing them but they're setting themselves up for like the first argument defendants it didn't happen which is yeah step one, it never happened or it didn't happen the way you said it did and if it did you're not hurt so like you're giving your, them out already in the case, which isn't great. Yeah. I mean, obviously I think from, from you, your view, your best case scenario is probably someone witnessing the accident, EMS coming to the scene right away and them going to the hospital. But very rarely does is all those things come together at the same time. Yeah. I mean, listen, like, exactly. We're, we're trying to eliminate the defense arguments. Like, and that's what a, a lot of them are. It didn't happen or, or it didn't happen the way you said it did or you weren't hurt. So like if it happened and we have everybody confirming that it happened, okay. And it's it's on the report, it's on the video. It's There's a witness, that witness is their information's on the report. We deposed them, they agreed. And then not only they agreed that it happened, they saw the liquid on the floor. Everyone saw it, everyone commented on it. All right, well now that that kind of argument is done. You're It happened. Now you're arguing about you know whether she should have seen it or whether yeah. you guys enough time to clean it up. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I mean, more information at the beginning that our clients provide the negligent party, the better, because it just starts the credibility of it actually happening, which is a big argument that you guys make. Yeah. I mean, sometimes like if, especially if you don't have anyone reporting the accident, it's such a, like, it, I don't know, for my eyes, it's such a problem. Like if no one knew about this and you know, you, you don't have any record of it, then that's, an issue for me. Yeah. I mean, sometimes listen, people fall and they're embarrassed yeah. and like, they don't mm-hmm. feel anything right away. Cause it's just like, uh, let me just get up and like get going. And then like later on they start feeling it. Well, they already left the store and what are they going to drive back and make a report? I mean, I guess they could, but like, they're not thinking about their case. They're not thinking about like you asking that question later on, like you never reported the incident. And then like, no, I didn't. Cause I wasn't feeling anything right away. Okay. Yeah. It's reasonable. 
but I, I agree with you that the report being there is better. Yeah. So how do you take in, in your shoes? I'm sure you have some counsel that they take a, like a no stone unturned approach. Um, is that effective in it for you to be like, Oh God, like the, the this attorney is not going to give up. They're going to do every single possible thing under the sun, or does it not matter? No, we're, we're the worst. So I think <laughs> that like, we, we fight fire with like fire and like cannons and bombs. And so like, if someone gets really aggressive with us, then like that just puts my antenna up to like be on alert that we're going to like hammer this person. And then I'll just tell them that we're never going to settle the case. and We'll just try it. We wish you the best of luck. Yeah. But, like, you know, you're that's, not an effective strategy with us because we're also on top of our files too. So yeah. it's not like you're going to ding us on something. Like we're going to get you before you get us. Yeah. And no, that, that does not work with us. The most effective lawyers are like someone like you, who's like reasonable, does their job and is like a normal human that can like move the case. And, you know, you're doing your best to defend your client. We're doing our best to put on it on our case. But like at the end, you're not doing anything shady. You're not doing anything like overly like, aggressive at a depth that's like where i have to like get up and yell at somebody <laughs> it's like it's you ask the questions and like you do your job okay i we can all respect that i, I think that people that do the other way are um gonna set themselves up to get burned yeah yeah i mean i i've always found like I, or whenever i get in scenarios that i'm up against someone who is just a total jackass like you tend to go into jerk mode too, yeah. but I, I still, I still always I'm like, I, I I'm, I'll always be cordial, but I just won't be as nice <laughs> if that makes any sense, because, you know, I don't, I don't need to be mistreated by, by you, or you don't need to be like an ass, like an asshole to me. Um, but don't underestimate, uh, underestimate me either, you know, and I find that happens quite a bit. Yeah, I think. Listen, we, we're always polite and always nice um, until someone isn't us in a way. But again, the, the most effective lawyers with us are the people that do their job, you know, subpoena all the records you can, that you think are reasonable. And you find that needle in the haystack that says my client injured their neck two weeks before the accident. Like that's the most effective lawyer. But like, assuming that didn't happen, the most effective lawyer is the one who's reasonable, nice, and like gets it. Yeah. And just like, okay, you filed it. They're probably gonna probably it seems like a winner. Like, how much can I knock off what you think it's worth and get it resolved as quickly as possible? Yeah. I mean, let's face it, we all know each other's arguments. Like, we all know, like <laughs> I know what you're every gonna time. Say. <laughs> <laughs> They're literally the same, like 10 arguments every case. <laughs> um, well, so we're we're just about out of out of time, but is there any other, you know, nuggets of advice that you would give to an adjuster or or defense counsel? you know, to like effectively handle a new claim or a case in order to get like, to kind of get it done for the best number for, for them. Yeah. I think I, and I've said this over, over the time, it's just responsiveness. Yeah. Like the quicker yeah. you can get back to us because think about time is money. The mm -hmm. may, the longer the client has to wait, like they're just going to get like, a, it's not actually making it better. Cause I'll just like talk them into like, this is going to be a long process, but if you can get to it fast from us, and I can say that, oh, the client, hey, they got, a, they got a number back to us quick. It seems like they want to get this case settled today and they can get us the check in a week. That's a powerful yeah. motivator to get the case moving. But it takes someone looking at the demand packs and 
picking up the phone and being available to resolve the claim. That's, I think, the, the best way to do it. And then you're going to get the claim done a little cheaper, maybe because you were so efficient with it. And nice. Yes. yes. I, th- like, I think that's a, a good theme is, you know, you, you attract more bees with honey. <laughs> yeah. And like, hey, you, if I can tell the client they can get the check in a week, as opposed to like, oh, I'll get the release to you. And it takes a week to get the release. And then you wait the 20 days to give me the check. I'm like, hey, add a cherry on top of the number. Like say, uh, you get, you get the release back. I'll have the check for you overnight to tomorrow. Okay. The client that's yeah. clients love that. Yeah. And we love it. Cause it, it just moves the files along. And also I think another thing that, you know, people need to keep in mind is you also work off of like recommendations. Like if you have a client that has a very positive experience like that, they're going to be a, you know, a repeat client for, for you. And not that like I'm in the business of making sure you get repeat clients, but it makes you look good. So that makes you happier. So then the next time you might deal with that, that, that insurance company or that attorney, you might be, you know, a little more not forthcoming, but even more open to talk about things early on and try to get things done at a reasonable number. Agreed. I mean, there's adjusters that I'm like friends with now is outside of work and I've never met them in person. I've only talked (laughs) to them on the phone and like someone's like offered to pick me up from the airport, like mm-hmm. because we just have this rapport now over however many years and they don't give away the cases and I don't give away the cases, but we get cases done because there's a credibility that we've built in that my case is what I said it is and their number is what they say it is. And we can get things kind of wrapped up. Yeah. And that's got to be so refreshing for you too, oh, to, yeah. you know, to streamline it and not have to run through all the hoops too. Right. It's like the non-robotic, like be a human, like just like get to the point, like talk about anything but the case. Offer me your number and we'll talk about like the NFL playoffs or something, but like <laughs> the case is the case. Like you don't need to talk about that. that I guess would be like my biggest thing to adjust is like be responsive, like understand that we know our files and we're not, we don't need to be taught them over the phone. Like that's it. That's how you get hung up on. Like just yeah. get to the point and see if we can resolve it. If we can't, we can't, but no harm, no foul. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you for so much for coming on. And I would say you approached me, which I love. I like, that's the best guests I ever have is the ones that are like, I want to be on. Yeah. <laughs> I, wanna, I wanted to be on. I'm like, I want to be like a <laughs> podcast star like you. <laughs> I'm not, not quite there, but I, I'm, you know, working on it. Um, <laughs> but for our, our listeners and viewers out there, let, let them know where they can, they can find, find you in case, you know, you never know they they might have cases with you or they, they might have someone that they know that, you know, was injured and they might want to have a referral for you. We've actually gotten quite a few cases from adjusters referring cases yeah, to us. That's great. Um, just from like our really, our interactions with them. Yeah. So um, you can reach me. My name is David Cordler. You can reach us at uh, kmfirm.com. That's our uh, domain name. And then my email is just my name, my first initial, last name at kmfirm.com. Um, yeah, anytime there's any questions. Another thing is, if, um, you know, whenever there's someone's in a case and they don't think it's a case, it may be a case. And mm-hmm. if you're hurt and you want someone to take a look at it, we're happy to do it. And yeah. the worst thing that we could say is no, and it's no harm. We're not offended if, if it's stupid. There may be something that we've touched that seems unreasonable, but we handled the case five years ago. So, yeah. That, and that's such a good point. Cause I think some, like a lot of people like shop cases around to their family, you know, and they don't actually get a real opinion on it. Yeah. And then, and if you are have a case, like go to a personal injury lawyer, don't go to like your lawyer, they handled your will 
because though they may take the case, if they're not in the personal injury space, they don't really know what's going on. Just like I wouldn't write a will or handle someone's divorce. Like they shouldn't be handling our cases. And I think that happens a lot, unfortunately. Um, yes. it does, it's a disservice to the, to the clients. Yeah, I will say some lawyers are guilty of thinking that if they're a lawyer, they're a lawyer of all things. And that is certainly not the case. No, it is not. <laughs> Unless you like got hurt, I can't help you. <laughs> Well, Dave, thank you so much for, for coming on and um, for all my listeners and viewers, you know, again, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defense of Arrests on um, Apple Podcasts, as well as you can find us on the Defense of Arrests podcast on YouTube.